So one of the main events for me in the last year of my life has been that I was privileged this last summer to be able to take a sabbatical from teaching and I teach full time and I have for a lot of years and take a sabbatical and go back to Asia to the roots of this tradition to be able to sit long retreat uh, to be able to study with the masters to be able to receive these practices and teachings through the art of pilgrimage so I also did some pilgrimage practice I feel so grateful uh, whenever there's times in life where we can do things like this. And, and I feel so happy for us all that each of you had incredible conditions be able to come together to be here for a whole week. Uh, so uh, not so different, really. So it turned out that I spent 100 days in India. And I didn't actually know that when I scheduled the trip and made my flights, but I'm sure you'll recognize this. At some point in the midst of my time there, uh, things got so simple and so settled that there were room for thoughts like, I wonder how long I've been here. I wonder how long I will be here before I go home. I'm sure I'm not the only one that has counted this retreat perhaps how many days have you been here how many days until you go home it's so interesting to watch the attitude of mind towards that wow it's been so short or it's going to end so soon or it's never going to end I'm going to be in India forever I'm going to be on this retreat forever I'm not going to make it so I had all those thoughts I wanted to share with you just a very very simple moment of practice in the midst of a hundred days of practice that sometimes was quite formal and sometimes quite uh, extraordinary. But this was a very ordinary, simple moment. Uh, And I found that it's informed me since I've gotten home. I wanted to share it with you, see if it informs your practice. So I was in India, uh, northern India, the whole time, and the story is about monkeys. Okay. So it's often spoken about in this practice that the mind is a monkey, common metaphor. And, you know, it's monkey mind and it's all over the place and it's curious and it's grabbing and it's this and it's that. And if you can just kind of like pull back together the the monkey mind and regather it and settle it, then uh, maybe, I don't know what, fill in your own blank. So knowing that metaphor, I started to get curious about the activities of monkeys. I started watching the monkeys around one of the places I was living. And in one of the places I was living, right next door, there was a, a large extended family of monkeys. And they lived in this big temple, around the temple. And the temple had a roof just like this meditation hall, except it was metal and, and gold you know, not gold, the metal, but golden in color. And so the little baby monkeys would have so much fun scampering up to the top of the roof and then using the roof as a slide. (laughs) And the mothers would sit at the bottom. You know, you can think of this roof here right before they would fall off and fall several stories and hit the ground. And they'd sit there and catch their babies. And the monkey, the baby monkeys were so happy and then they'd run back up again. And after a while, the mothers would say the same way we say to an overly active, 
a mind that's getting a little bit too excited. Okay, honey, that's enough now. Let's come back and settle down. And inevitably, and I did spend time watching them, the baby monkeys had to go run up that one more time and slide down one more time, and then maybe they were done. I think of that like our storylines. It's like they run, and it's so exciting. Just one more fantasy, mom, please, before I come back to the breath. Okay, you know. (laughs) Okay, so I can tell I'm not the only one who has this. Now, over the time I spent watching them, it wasn't just that they were curious and playful and friendly and connected. Sometimes they were the opposite. Uh, They could actually be quite territorial, uh, even hostile with each other. And uh, there were some territorial disputes between them and some of the stray dogs in the area. And so other times it was like these monkeys were manifesting the monkey mind of you know, aversion and resistance and, and fighting and protecting and asserting. I just thought, wow, you know, internal, external, both. Everything that's happening here is also playing out in the world which is why it's so important we're doing what we're doing here, because then we play it out in the world differently. So here's the story. This one place I stayed was at a a sacred lake, and there are a lot of sacred lakes in India, various different religions and, and things, but this was a Buddhist sacred lake. And so people would circumambulate, they would do a walking meditation all the way around the lake, which took, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes. They would do it at dawn, they would do it at dusk, um, sometimes during the day, and sometimes they had their malas. It was, oh, mani pay me home, oh, mani pay me home, oh, mani pay me home, which is a mantra of compassion. And sometimes they'd walk with their friends and chat and catch up. And sometimes they were clearly walking around that lake for exercise. You know, but it was a sacred lake, and there were fish in that lake, and the way that the locals treated the fish in the lake is sacred fish. And so one of the practices to be generous, to be kind, to gather merit, was to buy special fish cookies and feed the fish. You know, may all beings be well fed, including these fish. So one day I decided... Not for the first time that I would buy some cookies, get some merit, feed the fish. I was also supporting the local woman who was selling the special fish cookies, which, you know, felt important. And so I bought the cookies. And then I'm walking towards the lake to do my kora, to do my walking meditation. And I was walking through all these shops, and one of the shopkeepers, who I'd gotten to know a little bit, pointed and said really loudly to me, monkey, monkey. And I looked over, and there's this large monkey, kind of far away. And I thought, oh, he wants me to see the monkey. Okay, I see the monkey. I keep walking, and the monkey's starting to come closer to me. Oh, here comes the monkey. And then I notice how large the monkey is. I mean, the male monkeys, they're quite big. I mean, this one is like this big. It's huge. And uh, then I start to orient and realize that there are actually monkeys coming in from two other directions, and they're all convening on me. I lost mindfulness of the fact that the fish cookies were in a clear wrapper, and monkeys are quite intelligent. They saw that I was holding food. Uh, And so, you know, a few things happened. One was I got scared. Another thought that came through immediately was, well, I know that a few of these monkeys in this area are rabid. 
And uh, I also know that it's about 15 hours by car to the nearest rabies shot. Reality strikes. And the very next thing that happens is I scream at the top of my lungs, throw the fish cookies as far in the air as I can, and run. You know, I wish I could tell you that I had like a really mindful, calm moment. <laughs> and I sent them the monkeys loving kindness and they stopped and radiated, but no. I screamed, I threw, I ran. <laughs> so that's part one of this little moment that took, you know, less than two minutes. Okay. So we'll get, we'll get to part two, but I want to make sure to acknowledge where this Dharma talk journey is going tonight which is, is not just going to be about monkeys. Um, it's actually about two extremely um, foundational teachings in our tradition, both of which have been mentioned already in this retreat, but we'll flesh them out a little more. A lot of you have been noticing how we've been rolling out the practices and instructions and teachings during this retreat, so it's a little bit more. So the two teachings are the four foundations of mindfulness, So four different areas we can cultivate an even deeper relationship with experience. The first is the body. We've been getting to know that a lot better. The second is the feeling tones um, that have also been mentioned, the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. The third is mind states. And the fourth, just for purposes of simplicity right now, I'm going to call processes. We'll talk more about that later. That's just one of the teachings that if I can keep it together, we're going to explore tonight. Because what I started to get interested in is not just these four foundations, but the possibility of bringing awakened attitudes of mind to our practice in these foundations. So we've been talking a lot of bringing the awakened quality of mind of loving kindness to our direct experience. I want to include some of the other awakened states of mind. Because as I've been talking to you, I've discovered, uh, without great surprise, because it's been true for me also, that while metta is rich and super supportive, it's one awakened flavor. Uh, And sometimes what's needed is not so much the metta, but compassion, or a celebration of joy, or the balance of equanimity. So those four are called the Brahma-viharas, or the divine abodes. And so I thought just for fun, I would weave them all together. I've never actually heard a talk myself in 20 plus years of listening to talks with these two uh, particularly woven together. I'm sure they're out there, but why not? So just for the purpose of structure, the way I'm going to explore it with us is um, one foundation of mindfulness with one divine abode. So bringing a spirit of metta to the body, bringing a spirit of compassion to our feeling tones at the sense doors and how it's so easy to become reactive when we don't catch those moments in their simplicity. And we need compassion for that. And then with our mind states, that we could actually be joyful. Because don't we struggle a lot with them? How about let's bring in some joy and the possibility of joy in that. And then the equanimity with the way that we actually practice with these teachings and work with these teachings. So we'll see how it goes. 
We'll start with the body. And of course, a couple of nights ago, John uh, spoke quite in depth about the, f- the formal first foundation of mindfulness of the body. So I won't go over all of that again. Look at a couple places that uh, I'm particularly interested in. But we're emphasizing an attitude of mind towards the body that's friendly. And so in order to do that, we need to finish the story about the monkeys, and then we'll put it down. Because really, when I thought about what story, if I was going to share one little story from my time in India, what would I share? And I thought of this one because I thought, oh, this is about the body and the mind. Just a simple experience of the body and the mind. So what happened underneath the surface event of that story with the monkeys? We know how it appeared. We know what the storyline is. We have the content of the experience. What happened underneath? What happened underneath was basically I had a nervous system response. There were large monkeys charging towards me, and the system, in, you know, to take care of itself and for basic survival, moved into flight. It's great that the system can do that when it needs to do that. My other option, of course, might have been for example, fight, but I don't have a lot of conditioning to fight monkeys. (laughs) So it wasn't something that naturally arose in a moment of duress. It's interesting to look at a nervous system level where our habituation is. Some of us are more likely to flee or more likely to fight or more likely to freeze on a nervous system level. It's not good or bad. It's just noticing what's the habit pattern and how do I create some flexibility and fluidity and resiliency within those kind of habit patterns. So the key actually to this story isn't that I threw the cookies or screamed or ran. The key is what didn't happen. So let me tell you what didn't happen and what I saw the possibility opened up because it didn't happen. The first thing that didn't happen was dissociation. Could have. It was totally present. The second thing that did not happen was judgment. I didn't judge myself for having that response or anyone else. And what was so fascinating about that was because by grace, I was able to be in cessation of judgment. Uh, I was able to be connected. This is the part I didn't tell you with the 15 shopkeepers up and down the street who all ran out of their shops and were observing and reacting to my reaction to the monkeys. Everything from trying to help me, to laughing, to getting upset. You know, I I caused a scene, this young American woman. I caused a scene on the streets of India. (laughs) Because there was presence, because there wasn't dissociation, I was able to stay connected with them. I didn't fall into the pits of embarrassment. I didn't in that moment fall into the pit of shame, which would have caused a disconnection and a disassociation. And because of all that, I also didn't create a storyline. And I think for me, the storyline would have been, I am a person who. You can fill in your own blank. You know, you do something that's embarrassing. And immediately a story comes up, I am a person who. I am a person who uh, is afraid of monkeys. I am a person who is always causing a scene. I am a person who. None of that happened. Uh, What happened was the connection. And it was just like, this is okay. This is okay. All of that happened through the doorway of the body because the flight response was able to be completed. 
I didn't truncate it. I didn't try to like become so adult about it. Like, oh, I'm okay. You know, I knew I wasn't okay. I'd had a startle. But when we do that kind of thing, which is a natural thing to do, we lose the completion through the body. Uh, And then we start to disconnect. So these are the kind of pieces about the body and bringing friendliness. In a way, this is yet another answer to that question this morning. How do I bring hospitality to my direct experience? So I want to talk a little bit more about mindfulness of the nervous system. I've been sharing this a lot in the groups, and those of you that know me well are pretty familiar with what I'm about to say. But what I've noticed is these practices are simple, and they need to be repeated over and over and over because we forget. It's not that hard to be mindful. It's hard to remember to be mindful, right? (laughs) So mindfulness of the nervous system. And these are very, very helpful any time you notice reactivity. Could be emotional reactivity. Could be the stories are becoming kind of reactive. Uh, It could be the body is feeling kind of reactive. So at the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta, uh, it starts with this word ida in the Pali. And ida means here. So how do we arrive here? more and more and more fully in embodied presence. One way we can do that using the body uh, is a practice that is actually called orienting. And so if you're feeling a little less than fully present and reactivity is really high, sometimes what's helpful is to actually open the eyes a little bit and take in where you are here just here. We're using the body to give us that information instead of the mind saying, I know I'm here. I'm in a meditation hall. Where else could I be? We actually use the body to to tell us and to show us. Some of us here are doing practices like when we come into the meditation hall or into the dining hall, we're actually using the body to make sure that we're completely here in embodied presence. And the way that some of us are doing it is actually using the eyes and using the neck and looking around. Now, this is totally counterintuitive. We have been told around here at these retreats that they're silent retreats and don't look at each other, which is true. But one of the drawbacks that I see with those kinds of containers and instructions is we actually start to get a little bit like tunnel visioned. And sometimes that disorients our subtle body. So we're not looking at other people, but we're just looking and going, ah, here's the exit. Here's the, there's some people over here. Here's what's going on here, here, here. Another mindfulness of the body through the nervous system practice that can be really helpful, uh, I learned from Siddhartha. When he was being blown by the incredible winds of thoughts and difficult mind states sitting under that bow tree in Bogaya. And he was being rocked by everything. You know, aversion and fear and lust and doubt and, and everything that we're all being rocked by. And what did he do? He put his right hand, just like the statue, he put his right hand on the earth. And he said, the earth is my witness to the sincerity, of my good heart in this practice. 
you know, may I awaken now? Now, we might not become 100% enlightened Buddhas by doing that, but why miss the opportunity to ground, to put our hand on the earth, to feel our feet when we're getting anxious and all the energy is moving up? And we can remind the system there's ground. Very helpful. There were a lot of questions yesterday and today in the check-ins about working with physical pain in the body. Uh, I understand. Actually, my, my first six years of practice, of meditation practice, I was in low-level chronic pain um, from a fairly serious car accident. Except I was really young. Uh, I started meditating when I was 17. And so I wasn't even, I didn't even know to label it until a long time later as low-level chronic pain. I just knew that being embodied was a totally not preferred experience. I didn't want to be there. It was always uncomfortable, all the time. So I had to learn some things um, in order to actually sit in this very hall, actually my early retreats, and be here with the body as it is. So another tool, in addition to the ones we've already offered, for working with physical pain, when it forces itself. So let's say there's a little physical pain. Then we just say, okay, I'm noticing it and I'm coming back to the primary object. Let's say it forces itself so far into the foreground of attention that clearly it needs some attention. We've offered some tools for this. This is just one more. Um, And it's a practice of actually taking three breaths, if you can, If it's a high level of pain, it might be one breath. But just as a baseline, three breaths with that pain. And then finding an area of the body that is not in pain. Now I asked somebody recently who has a lot of pain, not at this retreat, but recently, can you find somewhere? And she thought about it and she thought about it and finally she smiled, she said, my nose. My nose doesn't hurt. I said, great. Take three breaths with the pain and then spend a long time with the sensations of your nose. Take three breaths with the pain. Spend a long time with the sensations of your nose. Other great places to check for not painful. uh, If you happen to have not painful feet or hands, that can be a very settling, grounding place to move back and forth between. So, just another piece of this metta for the body. And when we think about it, the the metta sutta, the the Buddhist teaching on loving kindness, there's a part that talks about all activities uh, and the way that it goes. And and I learned the metta sutta as a chant. I actually learned so many of the teachings from the Buddha as chants. Uh, It's just a way that I learn. And so it goes like this. While standing and walking, seated and lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. So it's like, oh, standing. Some of us on this retreat, standing is your most important posture. For some of us, it's lying down. Um, seated, standing, walking, lying down, free from drowsiness, we can come back again and again with friendliness and embodied presence. 
And there's an invitation that's a sublime abiding. So I'm not making any promises. But here's what I do know from my own experience. Um, You know, I have been visited by um, physical pain in my life, and I've also been visited by illness. And what I've discovered through those is that um, even when the body is really disturbed and it's not pleasant at all, there can be something so deeply sweet about a full, friendly presence. Um, It's an incredible gift. And for me, my hope would be is that those kind of moments and those kind of periods of practice are preparing me to meet my death in the same way. So we have body and metta for the body. The second foundation of mindfulness is feeling tone. And we're going to, just for the purposes of the talk, explore it with the awakened state of mind of compassion. We could also explore it with metta or joy or equanimity. But this time, compassion. So what is this feeling tone? I want to remind us that in the Pali, the word is vedana. And I notice that I have a habit, even though I'm really committed to Um, mostly teaching in the English language so that it doesn't feel exclusive for people that are newer. I do have this habit of using Vedna more often than I use the English. And I think it's because the word feeling tone just somehow, I don't, it just, I don't feel it. Feeling tone. What's a feeling tone? You know, there's all this confusion. Does that mean feelings like emotions? The answer is no, not in this case. So what is Vedna or feeling tone? We've got these six sense doors. So we've got our eyes and our ears and our nose and our mouth and our body and our mind. And they're all having experiences all the time, which can be known. When those experiences of contact happen, sounds, sights, thoughts, etc., one of the baseline flavors or tones of each experience is that it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, usually called neutral. So that can get really complicated. You know, what if we actually tracked ears and nose and mouth and body and mind and pleasant, unpleasant and neutral all the time? Uh, We might get meditative exhaustion. However, when concentration deepens, there can be a dance of just kind of noticing these things. So, of course, what we identify as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral is completely based on conditioning and conditions. I'll give you an example. Um, Having things quiet. Here in the meditation hall, perhaps having things quiet is experienced as pleasant, and when there's a loud noise, it's experienced as unpleasant. Perhaps. Then maybe you go home, and it's really quiet, and you go, unpleasant. I just need some kind of noise. Or it could be the opposite. Maybe you live in a home that's always noisy and it gets quiet and it's, ah, pleasant. Or you think, it's just too quiet here. I'm starting to feel a little freaked out. Why won't someone say something? The quiet becomes unpleasant. So it's conditioned. And it's always changing. Which is why I thought compassion might be a really great awakened attitude to explore with this because it's so easy from the basic tones to move into reactivity. First, we better say a word about what compassion is. When the awakened heart and mind and the awakening heart and mind meet pain, yours and mine and the world's, 
the friendliness response morphs into deep caring, which is compassion. This is from Sharon Salzberg. Compassion allows us to bear witness to that suffering, whether it is in ourselves or others, without fear. It allows us to name injustice without hesitation and to act strongly with all the skill at our disposal. To develop this mind state of compassion is to learn to live. Beautiful. So there's some near misses of compassion that we're all intimately familiar with that I thought I would name. Uh, The classic one is uh, pity. So I considered a near miss. It's, It's caring, but there's this a little bit protective separation between me and you. And it feels something like I over here feel so sorry for you over there. There's a little bit of extra separation because we want to guard the heart. Totally understandable at times. So we don't want to deny there's caring there, but it's a near miss. Just a little off. And then we can come right back and go, oh, yeah, I'm defending. Can bring some caring to that and be more open. And the compassion starts to flow. Uh, Another classic one that isn't traditional is compassion is not codependent. Codependent is caring, but it has a misunderstanding of the relative level that there actually is a me and a you. And if you're in incredible suffering, I don't need to drown in it with you. Because then I can't do what Sharon was suggesting. Speak out against injustice, act strongly, be skillful, because I'm drowning. So again, caring, but just a near miss, and wow. I must have taken on that near miss as a practice, really working with that quality of compassion and codependence, and compassion and codependence, probably about six years. The big one for me, early on. And also, clearly, compassion is not passive or collapsed. It's engaged. It's responding to the cries of the world. So when these Vedanas, when these tones start to get reactive, we need compassion. So look at what this looks like. um, So use the metaphor of a car, right? Um, So pleasant. When the gas pedal of the car of our habit and our conditioning gets pushed way down with the pleasant and it stays on, it leads to a few things, which are liking, wanting, grabbing, clinging, and becoming the one that likes and wants. We're all really familiar with this here. So I thought I'd share a little example of this from Ajahn Chah, great master of the Thai forest tradition. And it's interesting because I've often heard this story equated to Ajahn Chah, but he's telling the story about one of the, the masters of, of, that was before him. So I sort of wonder if he actually took this story on from the other master and played it up to teach his students. I don't know. But here's the story. Uh, so the previous head monk of the monastic order once went on a tour of China, and someone offered him a very beautiful teacup. It was unlike anything he had ever seen. He thought, oh, the people here have real faith in me to offer me this beautiful teacup. As soon as the teacup was in his hand, immediately he was suffering. Where should I put it? Where is it safe to keep it? He couldn't stop worrying it would break. Before he had that teacup, he was fine. You know, it's just a pleasant physical object placed in his hand that he equated with pleasant. 
Uh, but it got reactive. Once he had it, he wanted to show it off to people back home in Thailand. He put it in his bag and kept telling everyone to keep watch for the teacup so it didn't get broken. Hey, careful, please. So he boarded his plane back to Thailand, and when he arrived, he warned the novices, be careful, don't let the teacup break. So there's something fragile here. So he suffered and suffered. You know how the story's going to end, right? Finally, one day, a long time later, a young monk picked it up, and it slipped from his hand, and it broke. What a relief the head monk felt. Ah, I am free, suffering all these years. <laughs> you know, we need compassion. We need compassion. It's just so painful, and we know it, but we just can't let it go. And so the question is, fill in your own object of grasping and craving and clinging and becoming on that, and when the object is no longer present for us to crave and cling to, what is present? What is present? So then we have unpleasant, and when the gas pedal of habit and conditioning stays on, it leads to disliking and not wanting and pushing away and becoming the one that dislikes and hates it. So really, in a way, we're talking with the hindrances here also. We haven't so much mentioned the hindrance of desire, which is when pleasant gets reactive, or the hindrance of aversion when unpleasant gets reactive. So you need to work with these. So here's another story. Now, this is a wonderful little book. It's called A Monastery Within. It's written by Gil Fronsdale, who's a teacher here. And it's um, a whole bunch of stories that he actually wrote inspired by his children. And his children helped him write it or gave feedback. And it's about the abbess of this monastery and the teachings, simple teachings that she gives her students. So this little story is about a practitioner who came to the abbess complaining he had too many difficulties to be able to discover real freedom. I'm sure you never have that problem. Sometimes I do. Um, So what he said is, my back hurts, the monastery is either too cold or too hot, the food does not taste good, and my work as chief dishwasher is very unpleasant. Okay, it sounds like one of those days to me. And the abbess replied, if you're free only when you're comfortable, you're not really free. The end. Little stories, right? So we start to work with that aversion with tremendous compassion. It's not comfortable. Can I just be with the unpleasant? It's a compassionate response. It's not feeding the pain. So then we have neutral. There's an interesting question this morning about neutral. Uh, a question about, you know, what to do with neutral emotions. Because when neutral becomes reactive, and sometimes we have this misperception that we're actually just trying to create these neutral vessels moving through the world. Uh, That's not so. Neutral has its own reactivity cycle. And so when neutral gets reactive, what happens is we, uh, we get confused, we get vague, we disconnect, we get bored and we become the one who is confused and bored. And it tends to lead to the hindrance of doubt. So many times people have come to me and said something like, uh, talking about boredom, and then they'll start to doubt. And the question is, what am I doing here? You know, I came here to have something happen. And it's just like, nothing's happening, I'm bored. And it's happened for me too. 
It's like, oh, so what is boredom? Boredom is a slight disconnect with experience. And one of many causes of boredom is that it's gotten so neutral that there's no charge to be addicted to. And then we get the reactivity cycles actually disconnect. So we can work with that as well. So then we'll talk about how do we wake up? You know, how do we use these Vedanas to wake up? Because it's not just about reactivity, it's about awakening. So we can use compassion. We can actually, this baseline of caring is a root cause of mindfulness. And uh, I trained myself that way over many, many years. It, It wasn't easy, but I realized I needed it. I actually retrained the mind to kind of have a first response or maybe a second response of caring, of I care, which is so different than spacing out or neutral or protected or aversive or whatever. Uh, It's kind of like being on the lookout for the difficulty uh, and then bringing in the caring as soon as possible. So I say a first response. I don't mean every time. I mean a different way of orienting. So how do we do that using these feeling tones? Uh, the first thing is we can notice when a feeling tone is happening. We can feel the tug of a habit. Let's say there's a pain in the body. We can notice it's unpleasant. Before we go into the doctor's appointments that I need to make, and should I talk to the manager about calling and, and all of this. Now, I say this totally understanding that there has been needed sometimes to actually call the doctor. But I'm talking about the storytelling part. You know, we need to discern. So we could feel how it starts to gain traction and momentum and it's moving beyond just the feeling tone into mind states, which is the third foundation, and really have some fierce compassion with that. Because compassion isn't California nice. It can be fierce, really fierce and deeply loving. It's also okay to hit rewind. I often say to people, it's not cheating to hit rewind. So I'll give you a daily life example of this. Uh, my really, really good friend and I, when we first learned about these Vedanas, we were, we were, you know, we were younger in age and younger in practice and excited about this. Oh, pleasant and pleasant neutral. Let's, what is this? Let's explore this. And so we'd get together the way uh, young women do and tell our stories. <laughs> and tell about our day and you know we'd go do things and things would happen and at some point one of us would look at the other and just stop and go pleasant you know we just told like a big long story about something really got caught up in it and then you go pleasant and then something would happen we're crying with each other and we look at each other we go unpleasant It was just bringing it back to the bare bones and there was so much connection and compassion and caring in that. We can do that for ourselves. We can hit rewind for ourselves. We can hit rewind in our relationships. I'm sure like me, you've had conversations where it's like, it's going bad, it's going bad, it's going bad. Could I hit rewind and just go, oh yeah, this is totally unpleasant. And maybe they're not a meditator, so I don't say unpleasant. But I just get real. What's happening is it's a completely unpleasant dynamic. And if I don't really track that, I'm going to freak out. So then we have mind states. And the awakened attitude of sympathetic joy or joy, mudita in the Pali. 
So the third foundation of mindfulness is mind states. No awakened attitude in this case we're going to play with is joy. So there's kind of three basic mind states uh, that fall under this category. Obviously, they proliferate out into many others that we're very familiar with. But the roots are uh, the greed, the wanting, the, uh, the aversion and all its permutations, and the delusion. When the Vedana moves into reactivity, we're moving into this terrain. And it's as if when we start moving into that terrain, there's a pair of colored glasses that just gets glued on our face. And the whole world is aversive. It's all terrible. Everything sucks. And we've just got these things glued on our face and everything cooperates perfectly. We've been invaded by a mind state. It happens, right? Yeah, I'm sure I'm not the only one. So this is from Saida Utejaniya, um, kind of one of our new uh, younger meditation masters from Burma. He says, trying to create something is greed. Rejecting what is happening is aversion. Not knowing if something is happening or has stopped happening is delusion. It's very simple, very helpful. But we don't just want to know when we're caught in one of the reactive mind states. We also want to know when we're free of the reactive mind states. So we're not just running around here looking for trouble. Uh, I'm sorry to let you know that because I I know there's strong inclination for some of us sometimes to come here and solve all of our problems and look for trouble. Uh, the, The problems will come. I'm sure you've noticed the trouble comes. But... I really would love to invite you and even encourage you to be on the lookout from freedom from trouble. And sometimes it's so simple and so short that we miss it. So what about when the mind is free? We can notice that too. So this is another little story from the abbess in Gil Fronsdale's book. Once the abbess said, Desire and aversion are the caffeine of the soul. If you stop stimulating yourself with them, it will take a few days to adjust. You may even go through a challenging period of withdrawal from the desire and aversion. But if you can successfully overcome your addiction to desire and aversion, you will discover your natural energy and clarity. The end. So I want to talk a little bit about the joy of being aware of mind states because we all know we struggle with them. What about the joy of them? So I'll tell you a little story uh, that really woke this possibility up for me. And uh, it was just one of those days. It happened so many years ago, but it really feels like it happened yesterday. And it's just one of those terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. It's my favorite title of a children's book. Way, way back when I was much younger than I am now, I was a preschool teacher. So my favorite title of a children's book. It was one of those days. And I was just feeling a lot of aversion in general. And it was winter, and I opened my closet to pull out my coat. And uh, the coat hanger got stuck, 
and I was struggling with the hanger and I was struggling with the coat and I had this thought like even the coat won't cooperate and I started to get like really reactive and upset and even angry and I'm like getting completely angry at the coat hanger. It is out to get me, (laughs) you know. Uh, And in that moment when I just got completely angry at the coat hanger and it was out to get me, I cracked up. I saw the mind state for exactly what it was. Recognition creates the possibility of a different response. The whole thing popped. I started giggling. I started roaring. I almost fell over on the floor because it had just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, this mind state, until it was ludicrous. And it's just like the joy of the fact that anything can wake us up. Any mind state can wake us up. There's a possibility. That moment of clarity uh, that the abbess was talking about, that moment of mindfulness, it's just amazing. We can also have joy in others being aware of their mind states. So I'll tell you something that uh, an informal metaphrase that I will say in the moment. You know when others are experiencing difficult mind states and spewing them everywhere and we're getting covered with their difficult mind state? So I, I have this little thing that I say, which is, may your awareness grow and grow. <laughs> Because I figure there's nothing better I could wish for them. More awareness is beneficial for them, for me, and everyone else being spewed upon. And if we really think about it, as all of our mind states um, become more helpful, more wholesome, we work with reactivity with more skillfulness. This has incredible potential for our world. If everybody could recognize the mind state we were in, we wouldn't be in the global situations we were in. Because it just, more and more people get together and the mind state becomes from individual to collective to global. So joy is a divine abode. Mudita. It's joy in the happiness and good fortune of others. It's understanding that everything is contagious. And in terms of joy, this is good news. If somebody's feeling joyful, as long as we don't slide into the near miss, we have the possibility of feeling joy no matter what's going on. I'm sorry to also report what you already know, which is when somebody's really, really angry and our awareness isn't high enough, the potential for us to slide into our own roots of anger and have them activate or higher. Everything is connected. So near misses of sympathetic joy. Uh, Near misses of sympathetic joy include comparing. So you have something wonderful happen and you're joyful. And I'm like, I'm so happy for you, but I wish it was happening for me. I just missed part of the possibility of joy there. Um, Not falling into a scarcity mindset. That because things are going well for you, they somehow can't go well for me. There's, there's enough wellness and well-being to go around, actually. And then the far miss of this mudita or sympathetic joy is actually jealousy. Really painful. We've all experienced that in moments. So when we start to look at the mind state of greed on a, uh, on a kind of more collective level, I was thinking about the example of uh, greed is a mind state. And um, I don't know, it's flipping through James's Awakening Joy book. I just love this book. And, and I love that 
I love that he's sharing it on the planet. You know, people all over the world are taking his Awakening Joy courses. And it's just like, yeah, let's bring some more of that in. And in this book, there was a story about a woman who, to work with her mind state of greed in action, the way it manifests in action, she took on a practice of buying, for a period of time, only groceries and necessities, she said. And she said when the impulse to buy something extra came in, she had a special notebook, and she jotted it in the notebook on one side. And on the other side, she jotted down her emotions and reactions. And what she learned was that she could survive and be happy without buying that thing. It's very simple. But I was thinking, actually, uh, Diana and I think Donald, too, right? Didn't you actually, didn't you guys used to actually do um, courses in deconditioning greed and like the greed management? And I remember Diana Winston telling me, I know, right? This is great. I remember Diana Winston telling me that, that one time they did... Oh, (laughs) Donald said not very many people signed up. Can you imagine? (laughs) So they used to have a final exam in this course. And one year, Diana Winston told me that they went to Bed Bath & Beyond and weren't allowed to buy anything and just wander around and be mindful. (laughs) But that brings in the quality of contentment. And so let's bring in a quote from Catherine Ingram here about contentment as an antidote to greed. There we go. Called it sustainable contentment. When you're living in contentment, you automatically start to have a lighter footprint, a lighter use of resources. You don't have to keep adding more and more to your life. In fact, it feels really good to want what you have to take care of it, and to be aware that everything you're using is a representation of energy. She continues, if you're saying, I'm quite content now, and adding on all this stuff complicates my life, then you're automatically moving towards being part of the solution. Your life becomes the expression of that. So I think that's true both in a life with our material world, but also in our minds. Uh, Contentment is highly underrated. And for me, in my own practice, especially the first six months of this year, it was a deep current moving through me that I was just getting to know better and uh, in nurturing in its ordinariness. Really came to treasure it in a different way. Uh, I hope you do too, over and over again. So, fourth foundation of mindfulness and the awakened quality of equanimity. So fourth foundation of mindfulness is a little more complicated. It's called the foundation of Dhamma, Dhammas. A couple translations of that. Dhammas being from Analaya, uh, who's been referred to before this retreat, categories of phenomenon. Uh, another translation of that that I personally find more helpful is um, the way that we're mindful of the teachings of the Buddha in practice. So how do we bring some equanimity to that? And what is equanimity? I'll share with you my working definition of equanimity. Uh, It's not traditional, I made it up. But it has five basic qualities. So equanimity is the balance of 
the non-reactive mind and heart, grounded in wisdom, which supports a deep caring and leads to an appropriate response. I'll say it one more time. Equanimity is the balance of a non-reactive mind and heart that is grounded in wisdom, which supports a deep caring and leads to an appropriate response. So some near misses uh, and, and common confusions. Equanimity is not passive. When we lower reactivity, our capacity to see clearly and respond appropriately increases. And we need that for a service in the world. Another near miss is the near miss of indifference, which is equanimity minus the caring. It's balanced, it's non-reactive, but it's minus the caring. So um, just as a reminder, of course, that we could bring equanimity to the body, to the feeling tones, to the mind states, all of these weave together. But that would be an awfully long, long Dharma talk. So we'll just play, continue playing with it the way we are. So examples of these dhammas, these teachings of the Buddha that we could be mindful and direct experience of include these. Knowing the hindrances and their absence. So we can know when greed and aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt are present, but we can also be aware when they're absent. And that's a more advanced practice, and it's really, really important. Because then we start to nurture with our attention um, the absence of that which is, you know, potentially could get in the way of our awakening. But if we approach it that way, it's not getting in the way of our awakening. It's um, bringing the, the balance and the caring and um, the appropriate response to knowing the processes that make us up as a human being. Uh, specifically for those of you that are familiar with this, the five aggregates and the six sense doors. And John's going to talk more about that in a whole nother talk. Knowing the enlightenment factors. You know, what supports awakening and direct experience? And equanimity is one of the enlightenment factors, actually, that supports our awakening and direct experience. And then lastly, knowing the process about how we have stress, the causes of that stress, the way out of that stress, and the path and the tools out of that stress is another way of talking about the Four Noble Truths, which is going to be yet another Dharma talk on this retreat. So... These are all things we can bring equanimity to. Then I was thinking about equanimity in the world, and, and I was kind of just looking at how the talk unfolded. I, I think of these as reflections, you know. I just sit down and, and study and sit and feel, and things just kind of emerge and come out, and, and then I share something with you. And I was noticing that there was a theme about tea kind of weaving through this reflection. So I thought I'd just close with uh, another tea metaphor. And it's really looking at how uh, somebody that I deeply respect uses their Buddhist practice and the understanding of the Buddhist teachings to bring tremendous equanimity into her work in the world. And that person is Aung San Suu Kyi. And so soon after her last release from house arrest, 
in t- in her last release from house arrest was in t- 2010. She was uh, interviewed. And uh, so this is the piece I have out of the interview. That the regime, the... Uh, the the regime in Burma, that part of the government in Burma, because of course there are different parts of the government all coming together now in Burma, um, has ignored her repeated offers for national reconciliation dialogue. And since releasing her, the junta has dealt with Suki by acting as if she didn't exist. Uh, not mentioning her in the local press and hoping that despite her busy calendar and the huge crowds that gather wherever she goes, she will somehow dwindle into irrelevance. I'm glad that hasn't happened. So then she makes a quote for this article. And what she says is, I wish I could have tea with them every Saturday. A friendly tea, Suki says, of the generals. And then the interviewer asked her, what if they turned down a nice cup of tea? And she said, we could always try coffee. (laughs) And it's like, that's it. She understands that there are incredible hindrances in play between groups of people, political parties, between her and them, huge hindrances playing out on the political field and affecting an entire country and also impacting the world. Lots of hindrances. She also understands that there is suffering. There are causes to that suffering. That there is a way out and she knows the tools. And her appropriate response in that particular moment was, I wish we could have tea with them every Saturday. A friendly tea. And if not tea, maybe coffee. The showing up, showing up, showing up. Balanced, non-reactive, wise, caring, appropriate response. So that's what we're doing. So we're coming to the end of this reflection. And I actually, I actually have two different possible quotes to end with and then the way that I actually want to end, but it's a little bit of a risk for me. So I just need to acknowledge that and take a breath. Because the truth is, when I really thought about what I wanted to share with you tonight, I care so deeply about being skillful and being helpful in some small way. I know that my role is just a guide, and I totally trust you to support your own practice beautifully and perfectly. But if I had truly followed my intuition tonight, I want to confess that I actually think I would have sat with you in silence for about a half an hour and just really been with you. And then we would have sang, and I would have sang to you and we would have sang. Because that actually today is what's closest to my heart. So I want to acknowledge that so I was being really honest. And it's not the form we do here. So whatever was offered was useful, please use it. Whatever was too much information, confusing because you're new, let it go. If you walk away with one or two things, it's more than enough. That's usually all I walk away with from a Dharma talk. One or two things, it's enough. 
That's why we have them every night. (laughs) So I want to end with a dedication of merit. Um, And I I really want to tell you how touched I am. Every group is different. In this particular group, for whatever reason, there are more people showing up for the last sit and the chanting and the dedication of merit than sometimes do. Um, And it touches me to sit with you late at night. It's not to pressure you if your health isn't so good and you need to rest, but I want to tell you that it touches me. And I've been really enjoying it. And so I wanted to share a dedication of merit here. It's one of my favorites. And I thought maybe I'd read it as a poem, but I just can't because I learned it as a song. And it's by um, a dear old friend of mine and a colleague that I taught with in all my years of teaching family retreats here. Uh, he's the abbot of Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. His name is Reverend Hung Shur. Very deep practitioner who travels the world as an activist representing the Buddhist tradition. He's also a wonderful musician and songwriter, and he wrote this song. And he plays great guitar, but he's not here, so a cappella. The last line is repeated twice, and it's the same. May all become compassionate and wise. And um, when I sing it once, I'd love it if you sang it back. And I'll sing it back, and you'll sing it back. We'll sing it together a little bit. So it goes like this. May every living being Our minds as one and radiant with light Share the fruits of peace with hearts of goodness, luminous and bright. If people hear and see how hands and hearts can find in giving unity, may their minds awake to great compassion, wisdom, and to joy. May kindness find reward. May all who sorrow leave their grief and pain. May this boundless light break the darkness of their endless night. Because our minds are one, this world of pain turns into paradise. May all become compassionate and wise. You. May all become compassionate and wise. Me. May all become compassionate and wise. May all become compassionate and wise. One more time together. Take a deep breath. May all become compassionate and wise.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.